Uh, one of my favorite authors, John Mark Comer, wrote this wonderful book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, about Sabbath and solitude and being quiet and eliminating hurry from our lives. This is what he says about solitude. He says, solitude and isolation are worlds apart. Solitude is engagement. Isolation is escape. Solitude is safety. Isolation is danger. Solitude is how you open yourself up to God. Isolation is painting a target on your back for the tempter. Solitude is when you set aside time to feed and water and nourish your soul, to let it grow into health and maturity. Isolation is what you crave when you neglect the former. And later on he says, when we fail to add solitude to our regular spiritual practices, which is what we're talking about, our greatest threat doesn't become gratification or indulgence, but distraction. So we, like Jesus, must separate ourselves from distraction by putting time and effort into solitude. So this is why solitude becomes a spiritual discipline for us, a practice of spiritual formation. Because it reminds us of who we are and who God is. We, we humble ourselves and recognize our finiteness and recognize God in all his infiniteness. Welcome everybody. How are you doing today? Woo! Rainy day. But no snow. I like that. Whoever said no snow, I like that. Hey, kids, if you're here in this space, this is the time that you're dismissed to your classes and your opportunities, your communities to connect with one another. It's going to be awesome as you dig into your own new stuff this week. Make sure that you uh, invite your friends to participate with you as well. And those kids that are tuning in online, you can go to C Road, so CentennialRoad.com, and click on the Kids Connection icon right on the homepage and participate in that fashion as well. We are in week two of this series that we've called Spiritual Disciplines, and Jamie let the cat out of the bag. This was this big cornerstone project that he was working on for his master's degree before even coming to our community, and I'm so thrilled that we have the opportunity to dig into this together because this is how we function in terms of embracing living and loving like Jesus. We want to pattern our lives after Jesus. If we want to declare ourselves a follower of Jesus, we want to mimic some of the things that he did. And this is this stuff, the spiritual disciplines and practices that we're going to be talking about throughout the duration of this series are the how we get get that done because these are littered all the way through the life of Jesus in various ways, shapes, and forms. If you have yet to pick up your paper copy of our workbook for this series, they're available right in the boulevard uh, right now if you want to run up and get one. And for those of you tuning in online, I also believe there's a digital version available on our website that you can download and follow along. This is, if you've never experimented with journaling before, this is a great way that you can do that. Take some notes, have some fun with this, and then look back and be like, oh my goodness, I actually wrote that? I'm pretty smart. Like this is actual evidence of your brilliance if you use it wisely and properly, okay? Sound good? So make sure that you uh, fill that out and have fun with that. Um, here together. We're going to be talking about silence and solitude, two practices that are very similar in nature, uh, and we're going to have a little bit of fun with that today. 
Uh, the first thing that I want to ask you, though, is what comes to your mind when I say the word discipline? What comes to your mind when I say the word discipline? Again, in your chat of choice or here in person, if you have the courage to share a memory, a moment, or a synonym, go ahead and say that out loud. I say discipline, what comes to mind? Practice. Spanking. All right. Getting real personal now. Some, for some of us, discipline's a loaded word, right? For those of us that may have suffered atrocities and abuses in our younger childhood years, this, this overreach of power of, uh, in the form of discipline could be really paralyzing for us. And so I just want to encourage us, if that happens to be your story, your trajectory, you can substitute the word discipline with practice or habit, okay? Because these disciplines, these practices, these habits are meant to help you grow in life. They're not meant to diminish you in any way, shape, or form. Even though there's, there's sometimes a replacement or a, a, you know, a removal of something from your life in the disciplines that we're going to be talking about, like fasting, it's for your benefit, it's for your, your growth and your health and your well-being. It's not to diminish you in any way. So sometimes it's helpful for us to reframe that word discipline. And of course, if you have that spanking memory, maybe that'll be helpful as well. It's a practice. God isn't going to spank you through these disciplines. He's going to invite you into new rhythms and purposes that are life-giving in <clears throat> in nature. So we're going to have fun together as we talk about silence and solitude. And here's the thing about silence and solitude. We live in a very loud culture. What I mean by that is everything is bombarding us all of the time. If you have a personal mobile device, you are being bombarded with whatever version of news is trying to get your attention. Social media, Twitter, uh, it could be the Globe and Mail, it could be the Recorder in Times, it could be whatever you have read or listened to or navigated through is trying to get your attention. It's trying to focus your effort, your energy, your thought patterns, your priorities, the way you spend your money, all sorts of things. It's coming at you. We live in this loud culture that we're completely immersed in. I don't know if this is true about you, but even when I'm sleeping, I still have things, I have noise coming at me, okay? Because there's seven people in my house, and so I want to drown them out when they're sleeping, and so I put on white noise so that I can sleep. So I've got noise happening even in my subconscious because I don't want to hear something that is going to happen in my house, like, mommy... I peed the bed or whatever it's going to be. I want to drown that out so that I don't have to focus or wake up at all during the night. Anybody with me on that? All right, just three or four of us. That's cool. But if you think about it, we're constantly trying to drown out all the voices that are coming at us in various ways. Sometimes we do that with eating. Sometimes we do that with reading. Sometimes we do that with binge watching on Netflix Sometimes we do that with over-exercise. Sometimes we do that with dieting. Sometimes we do that with the way we spend our money or the way we don't spend our money. We're trying to numb ourselves in some way so that we don't have to necessarily deal with what is going on inside of our lives. These practices of silence and solitude are the resistance of the noise. The resistance of the noise. Jamie already did this with us earlier here today, but I want to try it once again. We're going to sit in silence for 10 seconds. 
I want you to take note of what it is that you feel and you experience as we sit in silence. Are you ready? Here we go. How many of you hear the rain draining? Yeah, that's a good thing. I bet we, I bet and I hope and I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to a very green spring. Let's put it that way with all the moisture that we've been getting over the last couple of weeks. Silence, it could be really intimidating. If you're out for dinner with somebody, you're sitting across the table from them and there's that silence, that break in conversation, what happens? You start to get nervous, like, especially if you're not like married to that person, you're in the dating phase and you're like, oh my goodness, like, what do I say next? Uh, how, how, how's, how's the carrot? Like, you know, you say dumb things out of silence. Maybe you've all had that friend in your world that, that is trying to fill the space, right? Trying to fill the space with doing something weird. Two of our boys, Declan and Paxton, they were hilarious when they were little. They're still funny, but when they were really little, they were funny. And so what we would do, Bonnie and I, was we'd keep them up way too late because they'd be our entertainment. We'd have to turn on the TV. We'd just watch them, and they'd be like, dee, 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 dee. like they'd be doing all this weird stuff. And you're like, what is going on right now? It's because they were overexhausted. But hey, they were a source of entertainment. They were filling up the space. And in our lives, that's what we do constantly. We try to fill space. We try to fill it. If there's a gap, we try and fill it. If there's a moment, if there's a break, if there's something that is happening, we try, we try and fill it. And the practices of silence and solitude are meant for us to be able to fill those gaps with the more of the presence of God. Not the other stuff, not the other extraneous things that don't really matter, but the stuff that's actually going to fuel us. These two practices are immersed in the life of Jesus. I want to show you three different verses from three different books in the Bible, these bio, biographical, biographical uh, kind of excerpts of Jesus' life that are going to be really helpful for us. Sebastian's going to put them on screen here. Mark chapter 1, Matthew chapter 14, and Luke chapter 5. Here's where you see these practices of silence and solitude begin to emerge in Jesus' life. Check this out. Verse uh, 35 of Mark chapter 1. Before daybreak, the next morning, Jesus got up and went out to an isolated place to pray. See this practice early in the morning. Nobody else is up. Jesus is going out from where he spent the night to an isolated place. A place where he was by himself in solitude, in silence to pray. Matthew 14 verse 13. As soon as Jesus heard the news, he left in a boat to a remote area to be alone. But the crowds heard he was headed, where he was headed and followed on foot from many towns. Lots was happening in Jesus' life. People were knowing and, and getting to know about his miracles and all these things that he was doing. And so he, he strategically and intentionally pulled himself away from the noise, the crowds, the accolades, the encouragement even. And he went to pursue silence and solitude so that he would be renewed and restored and ready for the next moment of life and ministry. Luke chapter 5, verse 16. Get out of here, Satan, Jesus told him. For the scriptures say you must worship the Lord, your God, and serve only him. That's an excerpt of this moment in time where he was being tormented by, by Satan, reminded of, of things that or encouraged or invited to experience things that um, were less than what he was designed to do. 
And through these practices of silence and solitude, he was able to resist what the, the invitations of the enemy instead embrace the rhythm of life and the mission that God had called him to on a personal level. Silence and solitude from the life of Jesus. Let's incorporate those into our own lives. Here, we're going to define them for you today. We're going to find what silence and solitude look like. And so again, they'll be up here on the screen in just a moment. Silence is this, the best way that I personally think of it. It's a posture of hope in a distractionless environment. Silence is a posture of hope in a distractionless environment. See, I recognize that not all of us have the luxury and the ability to walk away from the crowds, the noise consistently. And so we're going to have to incorporate and infuse this idea of silence into our everyday life. If you're a stay-at-home parent, you can't just ditch your kids in the house for three hours by themselves. You have to physically be present in that environment, but you can still practice silence in the middle of that noise. It's this inner reality, this posture of hopefulness that you can adopt in a distractionless environment. You can be focused and hearing what God might have to say to you in the midst of the chaos that you find yourself immersed in. That's just an example. Your workplace, you know, you've got a certain number of vacation days or personal days. You can't just be gone for three months at a time, right? You've got to put in your time if, for your job if you want to get your wage and all that stuff. But even in those spaces, you can practice this. Whether you're running a line, whether you're working with customers, whether you are working on reports, emails, whatever it is, you can adopt this posture of silence in those spaces uh, and, and, and be rejuvenated in very various ways. The second one we're going to define is solitude. Solitude is a practice of communion or connection without external stimulus. It's the practice of communion or connection without external stimulus, meaning that you can find ways to connect and grow in your relationship with God without external stimuluses, like coming together for a, a worship service or having worship music play in the background or whatever. You can develop this habit, this discipline, this routine in your life where you are connecting and communing with the creator of the universe through these spiritual practices. That's what we're aiming at and we're running after here today. If you've got a Bible with you, I invite you to turn with me to the book of 1 Kings chapter 19. I'm going to be reading the first 12 verses and then the first sentence of verse 13. We're going to look at the life of Elijah which ironically, Jesus is referred to as the second Elijah as well, the second coming of this individual. We're going to see these practices play out in Elijah's life and see what that could mean for you and I on a personal practical level, how silence and solitude could make all the difference for us in our relationship with Jesus. Starting in verse 1, and of course, if you've got the YouVersion Bible app, you can open that up and follow along with sermon notes and text in that way as well. Just the more section, the events, and Sea Road Live will be the first one on your list. When Ahab got home, he told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, including the way he had killed all the prophets of Baal. So Jezebel sent this message to Elijah, may the gods strike me and even kill me if by this time tomorrow I have not killed you just as you killed them. 
Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. He went to Beersheba, a town in Judah, and he left his servant there. Then he went on alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. He sat down under a solitary broom tree and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life, for I am no better than my ancestors who have already died. Then he lay down and slept under the broom tree. But as he was sleeping, an angel touched him and told him, get up and eat. He looked around and there beside his head was some bread baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. Then the angel of the Lord came again and, and touched him and said, get up and eat some more or the journey ahead will be too much for you. So he got up and he ate and he drank and the food gave him enough strength to travel 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai the mountain of God. There he came to a cave where he spent the night. But the Lord said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah replied, I have zealously served the Lord Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, and killed every one of your prophets. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Go out and stand before me on the mountain, the Lord told him. And as Elijah stood there, the Lord passed by and a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. It was such a terrible blast that the rocks were torn loose, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was a sound of a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. There's a lot going on in Elijah's life at this point. I'm going to give a, you a little bit of background context for this moment in time. He had just had one of the greatest face-offs in all of Scripture, in my opinion. He stood one man against 400. It was a God versus God showdown. The God that the nation of Israel was worshiping at the time was a God named Baal, a false god. This fictitious character that was invented by somebody. And Baal demanded all sorts of things from his followers. He demanded noise. He demanded everything. He demanded chaos. And so as they were having this showdown on Mount Carmel, Elijah kind of set the terms and said, look, we were going to build two altars. There'll be two altars and we're going to have, you know, some wood on there. We're going to have an animal on there. And whatever God sends fire down from heaven and burns up everything, that's the God we as a nation are going to choose to serve moving forward. And he let the prophets of Baal go first. And so all these people were doing crazy things. They were wailing. They were yelling. They were literally cutting themselves, wounding themselves, pleading that their God Baal would do something miraculous, that he would show up and and be the God that they intended him or wanted him to be, that he would show himself to be the God worthy of the worship of the entire nation. The crazy thing is, is Baal did nothing because he wasn't real. He was fictitious. He didn't exist. And so no matter how much they slaved away or they, they petitioned or they did all these things, nothing happened. Kind of reminds me of our world today. See, we serve a lot of false gods. We can serve the pursuit of money, the pursuit of happiness, the pursuit of well-being, the pursuit of this, that, or the other, the pursuit of freedom even. 
And all of those things are false gods. They aren't going to do anything for us. The thing that we crave can only be found and, and restored and renewed and filled in the one true God. But we waste our time spinning tires all over the place trying to fill our world, fill our lives with, with copious amounts of noise so we don't have to dig into what really matters. And in the showdown, as Elijah's watching this happen, he's, he's kind of in a mocking tone calling out to these other individuals and just saying like, well, is your God sleeping? Like, is he too busy? Is he on vacation? Is that why he's not answering? And then it comes to Elijah's turn. Elijah prays a simple prayer and he does something crazy. Like he soaks his altar. He makes it virtually impossible for anybody that's there witnessing this event take place to deny that God exists. He does everything you're not supposed to do. Wet firewood, wet sacrifice, all craziness. And then he just prays a simple prayer. And God sends fire down and he burns up the altar instantaneously. It's insane, this showdown. It's amazing. God moved in incredible ways. He showed up in real life, in real time, undeniably. And immediately after that moment, Elijah's in this low place. Because there's one person, the queen of the nation, who wants to now kill him. And sometimes that happens in our lives. When we have this great, incredible experience with Jesus, the next moment isn't as incredible. It's a moment of weakness. It's a moment of exposure. And the enemy is relentless. He's going to try and take us down. He's going to try and attack, kill, steal, destroy. It's why the practices of silence and solitude can be the antidote to that very thing. See, Elijah, he runs away. He runs away and, and he's hiding. His pursuit of silence and solitude is more self-preservation oriented. But even in that moment, God still meets him there. See, removing yourself or, or practicing the posture of silence or solitude isn't an escape. It isn't a fight or flight response. It's actually a readiness response. Because exhaustion is an invitation to be filled. And the moments where we feel depleted or exhausted or overwhelmed or overcome, in all of those emotional pregnant moments, there is an opportunity for God to work in us in a fresh way. If we would practice the habits of silence and solitude, meaning that if we would stop talking and let God speak, if we would adopt a posture of hopefulness, you don't see that right away with Elijah in this. He, did, he did, uh, adopts the, the, the posture of despair. Like, oh my goodness, they're going to kill me. So God, why don't you take my life right now? Because I'd rather you take it right now than I be killed by somebody else. Like, I just can't do this anymore. It's too much. He just saw God do something incredible. And now he wants to give up. How often do you and I do the very same thing? When we see a miracle, maybe not the one that we wanted, Maybe not in the way that we wanted it expressed, but then we want to give up. Because it's too hard, it's too much, or the healing that we've been craving isn't happening fast enough. 
The promise that God gave us 15 years ago hasn't been yet fulfilled in our understanding of what that is. So we're going to give up. We're going to call it quits. Walk away. It's because the noise of the moment is so deafening we can't hear what God is actually saying to us. Exhaustion can be this invitation to be filled in a fresh way, in a new way, to get us ready for the next leg of the journey. So Elijah's in this moment, and he's, he's panicked, and so he runs. He goes and hides, essentially. He wants to be in a space where he can't be found, he can't be seen, he can't be harmed by Jezebel or anybody else. And even in that space, God still finds him. Speaks to him, invites him to be nourished. Hey, get up and eat and drink. I want to nourish you. I want you to get ready for the next leg of the journey. He sleeps. Did you know that when we pursue sleep, it can be an expression of both silence and solitude, unless you snore? (laughs) Or the person you share a bed with snores. These things that we're invited to, these regular rhythms that we take for granted in our everyday lives are actually invitations from the creator of life to be restored and renewed and refreshed. They say that one of the things that you can identify most easily of whether or not you are feeling stressed or overwhelmed is looking at your own personal sleeping habits. How many times you're waking up at night how hard it is to fall asleep. All those different things. Sleep is an invitation to both silence and solitude. Did you know that God can still speak to you when you are sleeping? Do you know that God can, can renew you and restore you, not just your physical well-being, but emotionally? How many of you went to bed, you know, being being frustrated at somebody or something and woke up the next morning and it just wasn't that big of a deal anymore. See, sometimes the, the, the pursuits, the disciplines of silence and solitude are an invitation to recalibrate, reorientate our very own vision, the way we see things, the way we see people. We see that in the life of Jesus. We read a couple of verses from his life. You know, he got these crowds demanding more of him. And so what does he do? He, he removes himself from that situation so that he, he can hear from, from God so that he knows what it is that he's actually supposed to do and not placate to the needs around him. Somebody else's urgency doesn't have to be our emergency. You've probably heard that before. When we have so much noise in our lives, it's hard for us to differentiate what is from God and what is not from God. That's why silence and solitude, those habits and those practices are so critical for us to participate in. So that we know what it is is from God and what is not. We can differentiate between the two and embrace the things, embrace the mission, the moment, the opportunities that God invites us into. So you got Elijah, you know, in this space, and he's tired, he's run away, and God wakes him to eat, to be nourished. 
goes back asleep. God wakes him again to eat and be nursed. So he's ready that he will survive the journey ahead, this 40-day, 40-night pilgrimage to Mount Sinai, a symbolic mount in Jewish culture. This is where God spoke to the people through Moses, gave them a whole bunch of instructions on how to live life, all that good stuff. It's a great area and space, represented a lot of different things. And he finds himself in a cave on that mountain. And he meets God there. Interestingly enough, though, he meets God in what I will say the most unexpected way. See, there's this massive windstorm. He's in the cave and there's this massive windstorm that's just ripping and whipping outside the, the, the mouth of the cave. And the wind is so intense that it's loosening the rocks. Now imagine being in a cave, which is made of rock, and you see wind that is so powerful that is moving rocks. I don't know about you, but I'm panicking a little bit going like, wait a minute, I'm in a rock cave. And this wind is moving rocks. I don't know if this is the best space for me to be in. But he stays. And he recognizes that God isn't in the wind. Now God's the creator of the wind. But God isn't meeting him in that expression of noise. And then there's this massive earthquake. And again, another rock shaping or shaking experience. And he recognizes that God isn't in that earthquake. A lot of noise, a lot of challenges, but God isn't in that earthquake. He's the creator of earthquakes, but he isn't in that earthquake. In, in that he's not there to meet Elijah through that expression. And then there's this gentle whisper. And that's the moment that he recognizes God is speaking. So he steps out of the cave, willing to listen and respond. He can't get to that moment if he doesn't understand the value of silence and solitude. See, the value of silence and solitude helps us understand what the voice of God sounds like. God is a speaking God. If you don't know that about God, God is a speaking God. If you read the first page of the Bible, you see how God spoke things into creation. He spoke and there was light. He spoke and there was land and there was water. He spoke and there was birds and fish and mammals and reptiles and yes, even snakes. I don't know why, but he spoke and that's what happened. Snakes and cats. I'm going to ask him about those things. <laughs> he spoke and life came to be. See, the voice of God is always, always saturated with life. In the middle of the noise and all the things that come at us and bombard us, if the voices that are speaking to us are speaking death, that's not God. They're speaking life. Now, here's the crazy thing. Sometimes there is life through death. 
by Jesus giving up his life on the cross, his death, you and I have the invitation to life. That's how God's economy works. And so sometimes there's going to be this invitation, this voice of life that sounds hard. It might be like, hey, I want you to give up this habit. This habit of filling up your life with all these other noise-canceling realities. I want you to give up some of those things, and I want you instead focus on filling that gap with a little bit more of me and my presence. That might be the invitation that God gives you. He might invite you to realign your practices financially, relationally, sexually. He might invite you to do some of those things, but in those invitations that seemingly feel like death, there's life on the other side. There's life on the other side. Let me put it to you like this. The one who whispers is still faithful. The one who whispers is still faithful. That's completely countercultural. We're taught that the loudest voice wins. The most noise gets the most intentions. The squeaky wheel gets the oil. But the one who whispers is still faithful. And that's the truth behind the invitations to pursue silence and to pursue solitude. This posture of hope in a distractionless environment and this practice of communion and connection without external stimulus. It's to understand and recognize that the one who whispers is still faithful. And I get it because that's hard. That's hard. Because for some of us, we're still waiting for the one who has whispered to show himself to be faithful. Back in 2013, we felt as a family that we weren't done adding to our expression of children. And so we felt compelled to pursue a second adoption. And we started the paperwork at the end of 2013. And there's a lot of paperwork involved. If you've ever been involved in a, an adoption process, it's, it's not simple. It's not straightforward. You don't go to a grocery store and just pick up what you want and go to the checkout and then it's done. It's long and it's drawn out and it's involved. But we felt like God was involving or inviting us into that expression. And so we did that. We, we, we partnered with what Jesus was doing to the best of our ability. And then we waited. 2013 became 2014. 2014 became 2015. And we had this whisper that we were hanging on to, this moment, this miracle back in 2013, where we felt as, as parents, as husband and wife, that God was doing something. It was over two years at that point that we'd been waiting. We didn't understand the why, we didn't understand the when, the where, the whatever. In addition to that, in 2015, Jesus also gave us another whisper and asked me to step away from the job that I was doing. Now, I was the sole income earner. Now, my wife does a lot more work than I do and will ever do as a domestic engineer. She's got, like, 
her doctorate degree in domestic engineering, serving and, 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 and caring for our kids and helping them become who God has created them to be. So I was the sole income earner, and all of a sudden we got this second invitation dovetailed with this other one from 2013. It says, step away from everything and just trust me. I said, okay, I will do that, but you've got to guarantee to me this other whisper you gave us two years ago is going to happen. And he said, before the end of 2015, it's going to happen. Layla's birthday is on December 20th, 2015. The one who whispers is faithful. As you begin to incorporate silence and solitude more intentionally into your life, may the truth and the invitations of that reality and that statement flourish in your soul. And I know, I know that some of you are still waiting. And even in the waiting, the practice of silence and solitude will keep you ready to recognize the miracle at hand. It'll keep you ready. Meditate on God's word. Adopt that practice of silence, the hopefulness despite the circumstances you find yourselves in. The practice of solitude, connection and communion with God without the external stimulus involved. And in those moments where there's an earthquake and a wind and the other noises are so deafening you'll be able to stand firm, recognizing that the whisper's just around the corner. It's just around the corner. Let me pray and invite you to continue to worship as we sing and as we celebrate communion with one another. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the invitation that there is behind the practices of silence and solitude. And I recognize and I confess that there are times that I am terrible at this. And in our culture today here in Canada, we are, we, we are in the antithesis of expression of what it means to be silent. There's noise all over the place. There's chaos all over the place. There's things that we can get caught up into and drawn into that actually aren't life-giving or helpful. And so, Lord, I just ask that you would cement in us a willingness to pursue what silence and solitude look like, knowing that there's a full spectrum of variation of what that means on an individual basis. Some of us work 24-7 jobs, and we're always on call. And so the expression of silence and solitude are going to look different. Some of us are stay-at-home parents, some of us are teachers, some of us are seasonal workers, some of us are retirees, some of us are snowbirds, some of us don't even know what we are yet. In all of that potpourri and variation, Jesus, you are still the same, and the invitation remains the same. We can grow in our connection with you as we practice and put into practice the spiritual disciplines 
of silence and solitude. So Lord, I just ask that you would creatively invite us into what that looks for us, what that looks like for us on a daily moment-by-moment basis. And Father, for those of us that are intentionally pursuing that and yet still waiting for the one who whispers to show up in our world, in our need, in our questions, in our situation, in our environment. Father, I pray that you would show yourself to be exactly who you are. You are the faithful one. You're not the unfaithful one. You're the faithful one. And through Maybe silence and solitude, you will open our eyes to see how you are at work and moving, even if it's slightly different than we thought might be possible. Father, we crave you. We need you. Would you meet us? Would you heal us? Would you remind us that we are loved? May you bless and protect us. May you make your face shine upon us, be gracious to us. May you grant us your favor and your peace. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.